Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Thinking Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Dane Kramer, and I am glad that you're along today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for downloading this podcast. This and all the other podcasts from The Thinking Christian uh, are available on Stitcher, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Android. Um, You can go to my website, uh, thethinkingchristian.us, and get the RSS feed. And you can just plug that into whatever is your favorite podcast app. That way, when I release a new podcast, you'll be the first to know. You'll, You'll get it downloaded right to your phone, right to your computer whatever device you're using. So uh, keep that in mind. Subscribe to this podcast. That would be really cool. And as always, if you'd like to leave a comment on on this show or any of the uh, previous episodes, anything that you're listening to, just go to thethinkingchristian.us, thethinkingchristian, all one word, thethinkingchristian.us. There you can find the podcasts and uh, just go uh, leave a message uh, or leave a excuse me leave a response to anything that you uh, that you like or dislike have and um, that'd be cool um, I, I welcome any kind of response because that's how I learn anything just by listening to what other people have to say um, so I would encourage you to do that all right let's get started now last week I talked about the beginning of the Reformation and the reason why I talked about that last week is because the week before I had talked about the differences between Roman uh, or Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and which kind of led me just to talk about how the Protestant movement began. Um, it's kind of a cool story. And you know, I remember reading history, uh, church history for the very first time and I was reading through the Middle Ages and frankly, it was getting depressing. I mean, there wasn't a lot there that was truly edifying. It's no wonder why they call it the Dark Ages. Um, It it was dark. Um, It was just, it's depressing. I mean, it's depressing to read about the church. Of of course, there were good Christian people during those times, and they tried to do good Christian things. Um, But for the most part, it was kind of hard to swallow. It wasn't an easy uh, thing to read about. Uh, The the Roman Catholic Church, of course, held the scripture. They didn't, uh, and and the the regular common folk, the the regular churchgoer, the the congregant at the local church, he or she couldn't read the scriptures of themselves. And even if they did, uh, the Roman Catholic told them, the Roman Catholic Church told them what to believe. They held all the cards. And um, so there really wasn't for a long time any chance of reform. But finally, people like Martin Luther uh, broke free. And uh, and they broke free because they could read the scriptures themselves. And they began to reach different conclusions that the church had read. Now, once the door cracked open and the Reformation began, um, sort of a floodgate, uh, in a sense, began to happen. I mean, reform started to spread Everywhere, and one of the places that it spread to was in uh, uh, Swiss, in the city of Zurich. Uh, in Zurich, um, there was a reform being led by the name of uh, Jodrich Zwingli, um, and Zwingli was a man who started to preach reform, um, and he. He had the ear of the city council. Now, you have to understand Western Europe at this time. Um, these reformers, these early reformers such as Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and Zwingli, they were what we would call magisterial reformers. Now, the word magisterial shares the same root word as magistrate, and you could sort of guess what it means, and it just shows their connections to the state. 
And so these early reformers, even though they tried to reform the church, they still saw themselves, they still saw the church as being connected to the state. And um, they saw this as just integral, that this was part of church life. The church was a visible institution and and could be connected to the state. Um, So Zwingli started to preach reform in Zurich and... Uh, he got the the ear of the city council. Uh, they heard him. They they were swayed by his arguments, and reform started to happen. Zurich became a, a pro- was becoming a Protestant city because of uh, Zwingli, because of the church council's um, commitment as well to what he was having to say. And so, as Zwingli's popularity grew, he he gathered a little bit of a following. Um, one of the men who who followed uh, Zwingli was a, a fellow by the name of Felix Mons, M-A-N-Z. Felix Mons. He was a really a top-notch uh, Hebrew scholar. Um, he became a follower of Zwingli, and in 1521, another na- man by the name of Conrad Grable. Uh, joined the group, and Grable and Mons became uh, close friends. Uh, now, these guys were both uh, first-rate scholars, so they they were top-notch. Uh, they, you know, they didn't just go to the Bible study and read a few chapters, sing Kumbaya, and go home. These men studied the original languages, they studied the scriptures in detail, and they knew the scriptures. And so, as Zwingli was preaching reform, people like Mons and Grable and a, a fellow by the name of George Blaurock, um, they they were reading the scriptures with him, and they were being convicted um, uh, by those scriptures, and they realized that the Roman Catholic Church, in their opinion, had erred uh, in in its in some of its teachings and practices. Now, in the fall of 1523, Zwingli preached that the Roman Catholic Mass. Um, the practices of the Roman Catholic Mass was was superstitious, and that it didn't hold up to Scripture. The city council heard his argument, and they agreed with him. They said, "You know what? The 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 Roman Catholic Mass is superstitious, and we do need to get rid of it. But give us a little bit of time. Just you know, let's just not change everything at once. Just give us a little bit of time. We'll ease into this, something like that." And Zwingli was okay with that. Um, he was he was okay with that, but. His students, they thought differently, uh, fellows like Mons and Grable, because they thought, wait a second, if you're following the Bible, if this is what you're doing, if you're going to follow the Bible now, and if the Bible is authoritative in your life, and it indicates that the Roman Catholic Mass is superstitious and needs to go, then it needs to go now. We don't wait for a city council somewhere to vote on it. We need to get rid of it now. But Zwingli was tied to the council, and he was willing to let them make these decisions. When this occurred, Zwingli's students broke from him, and they began to now study the scriptures on their own. Um, And they soon began to reach some other conclusions. Now, these people these who broke off from Zwingli became would become the start of what we call the radical reformation they were the radical reformers the word radical just means to the root when something is a radical surgery is is surgery that goes to the root of it oftentimes today when we talk about someone being radical or radicalized we often kind of envision this extreme extremist uh person you know ha- far out on some sort of limb and I understand that that's what it's how it's used today but in, in its truest form it just means to the root and these 
radical reformers were doing just that. They were trying to take Christianity to its roots, trying to understand its more primitive forms. What is it all about? And and following the scripture was everything to them. Um, so they started following the scriptures. They started studying the scriptures. They were reaching conclusions that Zwingli hadn't reached. I mean, they were glad that he was reforming, but he hadn't taken it far enough, in their opinion. And they were going to take it further. Um one of the conclusions that they had reached was uh, uh, the separation of church and state. Now, you and I, if you're living in the United States, we kind of just assume that there's a separation between the church and state. But that assumption would not have been made by anyone during the Middle Ages because the church was in bed with the state. I mean, the church and the state were, were linked together. And many saw this as a very good thing. You know, yes, the, the state needs to be controlled by the church. The state needs to be an extension or an arm of the church. Uh, the state used to persecute the church, but now we have them under our wing. I mean, that was sort of some of the thinking by what we call the magisterial reformers. But these men thought differently. And they thought that the church, the true church, wasn't even an institution, wasn't even just a, um, a visible institution, but it was an invisible body of believers, people who belonged to Christ because they were converted by the Spirit of God. And you have to understand that indeed is radical. Because that's not the way the church uh, had seen itself. That's not the way the, the, the vast majority had seen the church. And so they started to reach these conclusions about this. One of the other conclusions that these radical reformers reached uh, was concerning infant baptism. Now, up until this time, all of Western Europe, if you were born in Western Europe, if you were raised in Western Europe, you had been baptized as a baby. You had no say in the matter. Your parents took you down to the church. You were baptized. And that was sort of a, it had sort of a dual purpose. It Not only did it make you a member of the Roman Catholic Church, but it also sort of made you a member of the state. It was it was a dual purpose. And so it was seen as, as again, very much tied to the state. But these radical reformers, in their study of the scriptures, reached the conclusion that baptism should be reserved for those who make a profession of faith. The baptism should not be given to infants or children or those who can't make some sort of confession, but it should be reserved only for those who make a confession of faith. And you have to understand how radical that is. And, and it, I mean, how different that thinking is. Um and it was not well received by the church, by neither Protestants or Catholics. So in January of 1525, Zwingli and his former students held a public debate um, on these matters. Now, to no one's surprise, the city council uh, ruled that Zwingli had won the debate. And um, therefore, they ruled that um, baptism should be uh, continued to given, be given to all infants. Now, some of these radical reformers had had children. And they had uh, held them back from baptism. They were the first children to not have been baptized in Western Europe for probably over a thousand years. And so the city council voted that Zwingli had won and issued an edict that all children not baptized should be baptized within eight days. And so these men were faced with a hmm, choice to make. Do they follow the convictions? Do they follow what the scriptures say? Or do they comply to what the state was saying? Uh, should it have come as a surprise to no one that they decided to follow their convictions? 
I said earlier that when I read through church history, it was so depressing and, and things like that. When I came to this section for the very first time uh, in, in reading in the Dark Ages, I, w- I was reading about church history and my heart leaped within me. It's like suddenly I got this it was like breathing a, a, a just a, a breath of fresh air. It was so refreshing to read about this movement, and I'll explain a little bit why. Um, now, I will say about this movement, there were some zanies attached to it. The, the, the radical reformers were not just one breed, one kind of people. There were some, some movements attached to this movement which are, well, less than stellar. They, they were not good, um, and, and they got a little on the crazy side. I'm not talking talking about that fringe I'm really talking about this this core movement this core radical reformation movement that just to me is extremely inspiring so in January the city council said you got to baptize your your children within 8 days a few days later on January 21st 1525 these reformers they had met together in the home of Felix Mounts and they had a decision to make um, now these men all had been baptized as babies uh, but they no longer believed in that. They never, they never held that, or they now held that view, their, ba- their infant baptism, as not of a baptism at all. And so what they did is, since George Blaurock had been a uh, Catholic priest, he baptized um, Conrad Grable, and Grable in turn baptized these other men. And, and a name was soon assigned to this movement, and they were called the Anabaptist, A-N-A, Anna Baptists. Uh, the word Anna is just a prefix that would mean again or re, like rebaptized or again baptized. Now, it was a name that was assigned in a pejorative term from their antagonists, those who didn't like them. And so these men baptized one another. They became Anabaptists. And this movement just took on life. Uh, these men began to preach this. I believe that they were converted by the Spirit of God, and it it really caught fire. It was a fresh removement, and I just can't help but think that it was a real revival by the Spirit of God um, in Europe. Um, now, there was something else that that just kind of denotes these Anabaptists. Um, And that is their devotion to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we read of Jesus' very famous Sermon on the Mount. And these Anabaptists were swayed heavily by Jesus' words, as well as any Christian should be. So heavily, though, were they swayed. They changed their lives by it. Their lives by it. in particular, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, um, you know, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus preached about living peaceably, and he, he preached about not offering resistance. And um, these men and women took this to heart. Uh, they they really took it to heart, and they lived a life of peace, even as they were being 
persecuted. And some of the stories are absolutely phenomenal that comes out of this. There's a book called um, Martyr's Mirror. And in Mar- I have it home in my library. It's, uh, it's about two inches thick. And it just goes on and on and on and talks about the way these brave men and women were persecuted often to death. Um, and yet they accepted this persecution. They accepted this resistance without fighting it. Um, it just, it just, incredibly amazing and heartwarming and inspiring all at the same time. One of these stories that has always stuck with me is a man by the name of Dirk Wilhelms. And Dirk Wilhelms was an Anabaptist, um, and he was being persecuted. I mean, everybody joined in the persecution of this group. They were so radical that not only did the the, the, uh, the Roman government persecute them, but the Roman Catholic Church persecuted them, and even the Protestants, who I guess had forgotten what it's like to be persecuted themselves, went after these groups. Everybody persecuted them. And uh, Wilhelm's, the story goes that he was uh, he was fleeing from persecution. Even though they didn't resist and they didn't fight the persecutors, um, they were allowed to flee them. And he was fleeing his persecutor. And the story goes that he had uh, escaped across a frozen lake or a frozen river, something like that. And he made it safely to the other side and his, pers- her, his pursuer um, came out across the ice as well. But his pursuer broke through the ice. And Wilhelms was given here a golden opportunity to get away. But he looked back on his pursuer who was struggling in the water and he knew that this man was going to die if he didn't help him. So what does he do? He turns around, following the Jesus words um, of, of turning the other cheek, following the words that, that Paul said in Romans, if, you're, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I mean, he reached out to his enemy and gave his enemy what he needed. He rescued him from the frozen water um, and saved his life. And when the man recovered, he arrested Wilhelms, took him back, and he was executed. And this story is absolutely commonplace. I mean, this is, this is not an extraordinary account. This is what these men and these women endured. Um, one of the first martyrs, I think is the first martyr of the Anabaptist movements, was Felix Mons. Uh, you know, when they gathered in Mons's house and they baptized one another, uh, they were in essence signing their death warrants um, because they were going against the establishment at that time. Um, about two years later, it was in January of 1527, that Mons was, he had been arrested and given ample opportunity to repent, to recant, um, and he refused to. He, he was just convicted. Um, and so, um, it's interesting, the the methods of execution that were used against the Anabaptists, the, the government typically would decapitate them, uh, the Roman Catholics would, would uh, burn them at the stake, uh, and the Protestants, um, they had sort of an unusual way of, of um, killing these people, and that was, they thought, well, they like to be baptized again, we'll just drown them. Uh, you know, I guess they thought this was ironic or something like that. These, these people who want to be baptized, well, we'll baptize you in a way, and you're not coming back from this one. And so they would drown them and so Felix Mans, Mans was um, arrested. He was uh, given the opportunity to recant, which he refused. Um, his uh, hands were tied, and a, a pole was stuck between his uh, knees. And I believe his hands and legs were tied behind his back, and he was rowed out uh, on uh, a body of water. 
and um, and was pushed overboard, and he was the first one to drown. Many many of them were drowned as a result of this um, movement, and it is just incredibly inspiring. The same day that Mons was uh, martyred, George Blaurock was severely beaten. He was tortured for information, and um, late, uh, I don't know exactly the date, but at some time later, he was also burned at the stake. Now, the Anabaptist movement is, is still alive today. There are many people who, who see themselves as offshoots of this, organiz- or this, this movement. Um, uh, the, the Mennonites um, came from uh, the um, Anabaptist movement, a man by the name of Simon Menes. He was the leader um, of, of that group. I mean, those who followed him became known as the Mennonites, named after his last name. Out of the Mennonite uh, movement, um, the Amish uh, would eventually grow. Uh, a lot of my listeners are probably familiar with Mennonites and Amish. Um, the Millerites, the Hutterites, um, the um, uh, Bruderhof, uh, uh, another group that springs out of this Anabaptist movement. And one thing about all of those kinds of movements at their core is that these people try to live very simple, uh, peaceful lives. Um, and uh, so many of them still tr- still try to maintain that lifestyle. Uh, and, and these people come out of that Anabaptist movement. Though it doesn't amaze me, it uh, certainly inspires me to think that all of this comes from just being exposed to the Word of God. But people reading the Word of God and being allowed to reach their own conclusions, to be led by the Spirit, to understand what it says. Um, and, and in so doing... Uh, it, it radically changed their lives. I believe it's the, it's the same today that any of us, you and I, if we were to read the scriptures, if we were just to begin to study them and to try to understand the word of God, that he too will work in our lives and radically change us. It's unfortunate, however, that so many Christians today let their pastor up front do all their scripture reading for them. They'll let the, the Bible study leader teach them what the Bible has to say. They'll let someone else spoon-feed them their faith. And I would just have you think about that, you know? Where are you getting your faith from? Is it coming from your pastor only? Is it coming from Caleb riding around? Or is it coming from your own study, your own exposure to the Word of God? I, I believe through our own personal exposure to it, we might be radically changed. Well, that's enough for today. I hope that this very brief three-part series on the Reformation has been inspirational to you. I know my study of church history changed my life when I began to look at it, when I began to look at what happened in my past. Because I'm a Christian, this is my past. If you're a Christian, this is your past. I think it pays to look at our past. If you've liked this uh, podcast, give it a thumbs up, like it, share it. Um, Appreciate that. And um, I hope to see you next time on the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is Dane Kramer signing out.